Today we're reading from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. Out of the midst of a bush, he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you, brought, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Thus ends the reading of Well, God's thank you, brother, for reading, and it is a joy to be here with you. I bring you grace and peace and greetings from the Lord Jesus Christ just from up the road at Grace Bible. It is a treasure and a joy to worship with Kingsway community. Uh, we really do stand together. I appreciate the... Uh, much of in the service, but the song we sang to recite together this, and in this gospel, the church is one. And so we are different local congregations, but we are united in Christ, reunited in the same faith. And it is my joy to get to show you something of that uh, in his word. Uh, I do take one uh, objection to something that Matt had said in that he had said, I, I will preach whatever is in the word and all of the word. However, I'm combining two messages that I gave at uh, Grace Bible a few weeks ago into one. So we're going to be here a while. I tried to cut it down, and I assure you I made a good faith effort to do so. But uh, you'll be nice and hungry by the time lunchtime arrives. All right. Well, with that, let us now turn to the Lord one more time in prayer. I need his help. I know you do. And for we can open the book and we can look at it and we can say things about it, but we need his spirit to work in our hearts, don't we? Amen. So let's ask for that. 
Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, so that we may rightly discern your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor, and only because of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name together we pray. Amen. So who is that person, and what was that day that when you met them, everything about your life changed? Who is that person that you met and everything in your life from that point forward was different? Uh, For me, I can still recall uh, grabbing Aaron Dressel's bag as we climbed together with another 40 other students to get onto a bus to head to Los Angeles International Airport. We were preparing to fly then to Israel where I got to walk and hike with 39 other students, but one in particular, this Aaron Dressel, who she was cute, she loved Jesus, and so I walked next to her a lot. And I can still recall meeting her. She's now my bride, and she's now Aaron Zaman, and she is such a treasure and blessing to me, my best friend. Uh, But my life changed in that parking lot in 2001 as we prepared as college students to head off to Israel. So who is that person? It's probably your spouse is one that you've met if you're married, and that has totally changed your life. But maybe it was some job connection you made. You know, you were working with someone, and perhaps they moved to another company, and then they recommended you for some position. Or or maybe you bumped into some bigwig in your field at some national conference, and that connection just vaulted your career to new places. Or at the very least, if you are in Christ this morning, if you are a Christian, surely... Who is that person that you met that shared Christ with you? Who spoke to you of a Christ who loved sinners and came for them? At that moment, indeed, your life was forever changed, really your soul. Namely, because you met God. And he changes things in us when we get to know him like we will again in this text from Exodus chapter 3. That is, I opened with meeting my spouse, my wife, but you know this, your spouse is always with you uh, such that we can easily take them for granted. It's easy to lose appreciation for all they mean to you. And if that's true about our spouse, our husband or wife, is that not true a hundred times, many times over with God? For not only is he always with us, but he's invisible He never texts us. He never posts to our Facebook feed. He never stops by for a visit that is in person. And all that he says to us is written down in an unchanging book. It's easy to take God for granted, to lose sight of how great he is, how glorious he is. It can be out of sight, out of mind. He is invisible after all. We can lose sight of how satisfying he is. And more than this, it's so easy to forget how desperately you need him. So let's make reintroductions. Let's reintroduce ourselves to God. This morning, we're going to be reintroduced to God. We're going to learn his name. We're going to see his glory. We're going to rediscover what he's like. We're going to rediscover and underscore all that he means to us. And in the first place, and above all, as you meet the I am, the great Lord, you're going to see that he is fully sufficient. He's full of grace, which means he can make up for all of your lack and failing. So the word for us this morning as we turn to Exodus 3, verses 1 to 15, God's full sufficiency in himself, his full sufficiency in who he is, that he needs nothing, he's always existed, fully satisfied. So because that's who he is, he can then make up for all of your inadequacies and insecurities to the full. And if he can do that, if he's fully sufficient, even though we are not, that means we can step forward in faithful obedience to whatever he has called us to do. Because it's not about us. It's not about our capabilities and our abilities. It's about him being the fully sufficient one. So step forward in faithful obedience to his call in your life, not because you are sufficient, but because he is. Not because you are able, but only because he is. 
And we're going to see that first as we consider this. We're going to see a holy God call a fallen man. A holy God calls a fallen man, verses 1 to 5. So immediately here, as we look at this text, we start to uncover more about this God. And as we do so, we recognize this great tension that exists if we are going to have a relationship with God. Namely, is that as he invites us into a relationship with him, he's holy and you're not. And that's a big problem. Well, let's pick it up here in verse 1 of chapter 3. And we find this humble shepherd named Moses. And really better said, if I wasn't so articulate there, a humbled shepherd. Verse 1, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Now just a brief comment here. uh, To take on a shepherd's role, especially for Moses, if you can think back to the early chapters of of Exodus, he was basically the prince of Egypt. He was the son of Pharaoh's daughter, adopted in. Could he have been the next Pharaoh in line? But of course, he had to flee. And now he's a shepherd, lost in the wilderness. But as a shepherd in particular, we know as well from the book of Genesis that shepherds were despised by the Egyptians. They hated this work. This kind of work with the animals was dirty. It was beneath them. They didn't do this. And so you have now one who was once the prince of Egypt, so to speak, and now he is a humbled, dirty shepherd wandering lost in the wilderness. Before the world, and maybe even before himself, you might say, Moses was someone of no significance. And so again, verse 1, Moses, what is he doing? He's being faithful to shepherd in the opportunity he has. He led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb. And then we hear here, the mountain of God. You know, the Mount Horeb has a more famous name. It's Mount Sinai. This is the place where God appears and meets with Israel in Exodus 19 and then so forth as it follows. This is the mountain where God appears on earth and meets his people. And yet Moses had no idea about this. This wasn't why he was near Mount Horeb. None of this was known yet to Moses. So he's wandering around quite unknowingly. At least that's the impression here. The point is, he's not looking for God. But God comes calling, looking for him. And he's calling him. Verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. So so Moses has to get closer. He has to figure out, what is this? Because this doesn't happen. Fires maybe in the wilderness are not too odd. Because when you think wilderness here, to be clear, we're talking a desert wilderness. This isn't like the wilderness of Virginia or West Virginia. This is the wilderness of the desert. So you might have shrubs, and these things might burn But this thing, as it burns, it doesn't get burned up. It's like it has an energy source that's unending. This is strange. And so as he comes closer to figure out what this is, he, though in no way, could prepare for how extraordinary, how marvelous, and how great this sight would be as he approaches this bush. Such that as he gets closer, verse 4, God calls his name. When the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called out to him, out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. He hears God, he hears his own name coming out of the bush. And I don't know what you would do, but he freezes in his tracks and that's the right move. Because apparently getting any closer was quite dangerous. Look at verse five. Then God said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place which you are standing is holy ground. Whoa. What have you walked into? This is perilous. This is the first time in the Bible we encounter something called holy ground. Now, what does holy mean, especially here? Uh, It's such a religious word, isn't it? We might use it all the time. We sang it. But in the most basic sense, that something that is holy means that it's separate, it's set apart, it's distinct. 
In that way, it's special. It's not ordinary. It's not common. I've heard it well illustrated. You can talk about what might be holy in everyday life, you know, taking the spiritual element out of it for a second for illustration. What's holy in my home, so to speak, are the fine china dishes. Those are quite holy. Uh, We received those uh, when we were married, uh, generous gifts from friends and family, but they're not in the normal cupboard where all of our dishes are. Where are they? They're set apart. They're put in the china hutch. And they sit in our china hutch, basically undisturbed all the time. Beautiful, pristine, pricey, very far away from our kids' fingers most of the time. These special plates only see the light of the kitchen and the kitchen table on the most special occasions or when we have the Williams family over for dinner. They're just too special, those plates, to be used for anything else. I'm not going to go home and go heat up a hot dog or leftover pizza on my fine china. I'm not going to go to the china hutch for that. I have ordinary dishes or, honestly, paper plates for these kind of things. In that way, you might say those dishes are holy. They're set apart. Well, to take it back to the spiritual world, this ground now is holy. It's set apart. It's special. It's not for ordinary use. It's not for common interaction. This is a place that now says no trespassing, danger. Why? Because God is there. We see in verse 2, it begins, it mentions the angel of the Lord appears in this burning bush. But from then throughout this text, we don't hear about the angel of the Lord, which merely just is God's messenger or can be. But in this case, this messenger from God, he is God. He comes with God's authority. Hence, when out for whatever else he speaks in this text, it's the Lord speaking. God is here. And now the ground is holy. It's sanctified. It's dangerous for anything common or ordinary to come near it. It's the very presence of God within himself sanctifying the ground. And Moses has just walked into it. So Moses, as a sinner, think unholy, unfit, imperfect. This is a dangerous move to get near the holy and different and sanctified God to touch the ground of his holiness. Because anything that gets near him has to be extraordinary, different, and special like he is. So we have to turn for a moment. Can you come near to God? Can you draw near to him in prayer even? Can you call out upon him and to his name? But I will tell you, don't dare try it without Christ's work covering you. Don't get near with the blood of Christ covering over all your sins. But back to Exodus, for Moses, there's no sacrifice he can make right now. So what can he do? God tells him, take your shoes off. This is to show, at least in the immediacy of this, some respect Something that Moses can do to change, to show that this is different. This is holy ground. And besides that, what else can Moses do? Don't dare come a step closer. Keep your distance. And yet, even with all of that, does it not astound us? God still calls him, still invites him in. As as fallen and as unholy as Moses is, Because again, it's not as if God turned on the light of the burning bush in the wilderness and he was trying to get some other shepherd's attention and Moses saw it first and came close and God's like, oh no, I got the wrong guy. This isn't how it worked. God knew the whole time. He was orchestrating every bit to draw Moses in. So get this, God knew Moses well before Moses ever met God. That means God knew Moses' sins. He knew of Moses' pride. He knew of Moses' tendency to fear men and tendency to run from responsibility. He knew of Moses' murder of the Egyptian. And yet the holy God calls a fallen man anyway. Do you understand where this leads? He always works this way. 
God calls fallen, stumbling sinners to turn to him, to find mercy with him, and then to follow him. Despite all of his horrendous sins, think of the Apostle Paul. He directly opposed Christ. He persecuted the church. He's out murdering Christians, and yet he's forgiven, and then more than that, enlisted into ministry. And why? To show what? He tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. What does the Apostle Paul's salvation tell us? This, the saying is trustworthy, he says, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. And more than that, he adds this. This is verse 16 of 1 Timothy 1. But I receive mercy for this reason. Why would God show mercy to a God like Paul, who's killing people in the church? For this reason, that in me, Paul says, as the foremost... Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. My life is to be a trophy that God can forgive anybody. Because if he can forgive me, he can forgive you whatever sins you've done. That's what Moses' life is telling you this morning. And whatever your sins and your things and your failures, Christ is saying, draw near to me, you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, but you got to come. If Paul the persecutor can be forgiven, if Moses the murderer can be forgiven, if David the murderer and adulterer can be forgiven and still used of God even, this is about obeying this call. Can he not use me? Oh, he can. Next, we see this. A faithful God conscripts a failed man. A faithful God conscripts calls into ministry a failed man. Verses 6 to 10. So now God's called Moses close, and he's having this dialogue with Moses. And we get to see here another way God's full sufficiency makes up for, this time, his failures. He still calls him into service because he's a faithful God who can make up for them. And where this begins or where God re-strengthens Moses in this and us is to underscore his long memory, his great faithfulness, his faithfulness to his promises. Look at this then in verses 6 to 8 of Exodus 3. And God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Smart move. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of their land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But go back to the beginning there in verse 6. I am the God of your father, he tells Moses. Moses, I'm the God you always heard about. I'm the God as you grew up that your parents were always telling you about. Your father taught you about me. And that's why he wouldn't throw you in the river like all of the the boys were called to have been by Pharaoh. Your dad and your mom, they, they told you about these promises that were made to our forefathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These promises to give you a land for God's people. And so now it is, after 400 years of long waiting, God saying, I've seen my people suffering, I've heard their cries, I'm ready to act on my promises. But there's a catch, Moses. What is that? Well, let's see. Verse 9. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel, God says, has come to me. And I've seen the oppression which, which, excuse me, with which the Egyptians oppressed them. God's telling this. You can almost imagine Moses retorting, oh, oh, I know, it's terrible. It's horrible. I've been trying to forget about it these past 40 years wandering the wilderness. It just pains my heart. I don't even want to think about it. And I'm so glad you're finally going to do something about it. About time, by the way. But then the Lord says this to Moses, verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people the children of Israel out of Egypt. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, time out. I love the whole idea, the whole plan about saving your people, but why are you getting me involved in this? 
Because namely, and we would have seen this earlier in Exodus, Moses already tried this. That's why he murdered the Egyptian. He already tried to work a redemption and bring God's people out of Egypt. And it went horrible. Pharaoh was out to kill him. He ran away. God, why are you giving me this ministry? I tried this already, and it went horribly. That is, what accounts for Moses' reticence to hearing this? Well, in one half, I would say it's an honest assessment of his abilities. He knows he can't go up against the strongest army in the, really the known world at this time and have any success of trying to liberate this people. But most of all, he's been there and he failed big time. And now he was 40 years old when he killed the Egyptian and ran away. Now he's 80. He's 40 years past his prime. He couldn't do it then. I know I can't do it now, God. Why are you calling me into this now? And yet, despite his failures, God calls him anyway. Because as Moses will soon intimately discover, this isn't about you, Moses. It's not about what you can do. It's about God. It's about what he can do, isn't it? His strength. He's not so weak that he can't even work through your failures from before. Is he that weak of strength? That he couldn't work through the failures of, say, Moses or David or think Peter or Rick or Tom or whoever? Of course he can. He's the almighty God. More than this, and here's the point, he's promised to do it. God's purposes will not be derailed because his people, even his chosen instruments, have failed him from time to time. So often, like here with Moses, actually, you know what God does? He even leverages those failures in his servants to be all the more effective and useful for his kingdom purposes. So for you, have you sidelined yourself for ministry? of helping in the church, of speaking of Christ, because you tried it and you failed. You tried to share the gospel with somebody and they just got really offended. Uh, You tried to lead someone in a Bible study and it just went bad. Uh, They got upset. They ended up more confused than when it started. You've been there? Oh, I've been there. Yeah, you tried to lead family devotions and things just flopped. Kids were all over the place. Things were boring. You even thought it was boring? Or maybe you tried public teaching and you like bombed. Like it went bad. The first time I ever taught, I was a senior in high school. I taught our youth group, which was a large group at the time. I'd been a Christian for about a year. And my youth pastor came up excitedly and said afterward, dude, he was a surfer from Southern California, dude, I think you have the gift of unclarity. (laughs) What do you say? Or or maybe you're trying to host some people in your your home, uh, like some kind of fellowship, and it just didn't go well for whatever reason, and you just feel like a failure. You're like this. Why bother? Someone else can do that stuff. I'm not gifted for that. Whatever I touch, I have the anti-Midas touch in ministry. It just goes horrible. You know, it's better to just stay in the fringes, kind of keep away, let others get involved, because it'll go better. But this word from Exodus 3 is, no, that's not the right response. Why? Because that's not a faith-filled response in your God, because it's not about you. Actually, how many times will we use our own failures to bring out greater successes. And why? He often does this. Why? Because then he gets the glory for it, you see. He wasn't behind. or He was behind all of it. He gets the credit. Because get this, like Moses, if God has pursued you, if he's called you to himself, if he has called you into relationship with himself, the Holy One, then he's called you into ministry. Maybe not full-time pastoral ministry, vocational ministry, But every Christian is called to the work of ministry. Ephesians 4 talks about 
the equipping of the saints, that's us, all of us, in Christ, for the work of ministry, what is that? Building up the body. You're all called. You're all enlisted. And he's equipped you for this. That means every failure in this room is being called and equipped by God for that ministry. And before you give me more objections about why it's okay for you to be on the sidelines, you need to think about this. What has God promised? Who is the God who made the promise? Is he not faithful? Will he not build his church? Can he not use failures too? Indeed, could it not be that your weakness and failure is that very place for his grace to come in and his power to make you fruitful and faithful for him? So trust him. Take one step this next week out of the sidelines and into the church field, so to speak, to encourage your brothers and sisters and build them up in the faith. Third, we see here a present God gives courage to a feeble man. We saw him as a fallen sinner. We saw him failed as he attempted and had not been successful. But now we see his very weakness in verses 11 and 12. But God is present. Again, God reveals his plan to Moses to be the one who's going to lead God's people out of Egypt. But Moses rebuts. Ah, no thanks, God. I'm not able to do what you ask of me. Look at verse 11 of Exodus 3. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And a lot of some of the things we're saying, and my self-righteousness, I just want to go rebuke Moses for his lack of faith. Like, especially as you see here, he just throws up objection, excuse after excuse. In verse 13, he goes on and says, I, I don't even know your name properly. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, well, they're not going to believe me. And then verse 10 of chapter 4, Moses says to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And then in verse 13 of chapter 4, Moses just so blunt, he just says, Just send somebody else. Begging God. And, and to that point, if I'm God, I'm going to look at Moses and say, I find your lack of faith disturbing. And he's, God says as much. Look at verse 14 of chapter 4. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses for his constant objections and shirking of this responsibility. Moses, how could you be of so little faith? I mean, even in this picture of the burning bush, this was astounding. This was a miracle. You saw it with your own eyes, this unquenchable flame. And he's given you now his promise. Isn't that enough? but he's weak. There is faithlessness here in the sense of a weakness of faith, but he's weak physically. He's very feeble. And our God is a realist, as in he's realistic about Moses' abilities and weaknesses. That is, I think the Lord would agree with Moses on almost all these accounts. You know, you're right, Moses, you can't do this. But this wasn't a mistake on God's part, as he called Moses. God knew from the beginning, again, how feeble even Moses would be. But again, Moses' abilities, his resourcefulness, those were never the answer to this challenge. They were never what the answer was about how this could possibly happen. Who am I to go and set this people free? Moses, you can almost say it with me, it's not about you. Verse 12, but he said, I will be with you. That's his answer. I can't do it, but I will be with you. And so you see, it's the presence of God that makes all the difference. Or really, it does change everything. Because it's not about you, it's about me, God says, with you. So from there, many times in Scripture, what does God do? He dispels, he casts out our fears by what? Giving us his presence. I'm scared, God. I'm with you. Not as in, I agree, but I'm by your side. And we know in the new covenant, I am in you. It's that presence of God that drives away our fear, that drives away our trepidation. 
And that precious truth is so summarized well by Isaiah. You know this verse, chapter 41, verse 10. Fear not, the Lord says. Why? For I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God, and I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Praise God. So you see then, though, as he promises his presence to be beside us, to cast out all fear, his presence with us is not a stagnant or lifeless presence. That is, he's not merely at your side to comfort you, though he does this. No, more like what we see with Moses here or with Joshua and then after the next set of stories in the Bible, God gives you his presence to equip you for work. And let me just give you one New Testament example. You know it really well, I'm sure. But it's in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. So as Jesus concludes his earthly ministry and is about to get up to the Father's right hand in heaven, he gives what we call the Great Commission. You know it well. It's this rather audacious mission that the Lord Christ gives his church. And this mission, go make disciples of all nations, it's global, it's international, it's multilingual, it's multi-ethnic, it's multi-generational, to then go make disciples, followers of Christ from every nation, people, language, from all the peoples of the earth of all time. That is, we're to go among them and preach Christ, to bring them to embrace King Jesus as their Savior and Lord. That is a task far too big for any one of us, any particular church or couple churches. But what was the awesome assurance that King Jesus gives at the end of that commission? And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is why you can do this. Because it's not about you. It's about him with you. Yeah, you can't do it. But can King Jesus do it? That's the determinative issue. Fear flees as he gives the assurance of his presence. And so then by faith, we are called like Joshua to be strong and courageous, to step forward in faithfulness, not because we got this, but because he does and he's with us. That's the only place where confidence can lie. So what has he called you to do? Do you feel adequate for it? Do you say, who am I? Jesus, who am I to go speak to my boss about you? Who am I to interrupt my neighbor and go speak to them about Christ? Who am I to take the initiative to have that gospel conversation with my son? Who am I to lead ladies in prayer and scripture study? Who am I to try and organize some brothers for a service or ministry team? Who am I? Who am I? And you want to then say, it's not about you. It's about who's with you. And the presence of God is a game changer. So he's with you. Remember this. And by remembering it, put that sin to death and obey in faith. Walk forward in your call. Fourth, we have a sufficient God commissions a flawed man. Verses 13 and 15. This seems rather audacious. It shows the weakness, I think, of Moses even as God promises his very presence and confirmations of it to come, Moses, he still objects. I ain't going. So he says, when I get there and I'm going to speak to my people, I don't even know what to tell them. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and then they ask me, what is his name? Well, what am I going to tell them? Here's the Lord's reply. Verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. So go and say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. That's what you need to tell them. Who is this God? What's his name? What is he like most fundamentally? But you can call him the I am who I am. The I am has sent me. And truly, this is what sets our God apart from all creation or from any other so-called God. He is the I am. 
And at first, this is helpful to think about until you start to really think about it. And then you realize, what does it mean you are the I am who I am? It becomes more mysterious the more incomprehensible you seem to ponder it. Namely because as the I am, he is three things we are not, and I must be so brief. But each one of these blows our mind. As the I am who is the I am, he is first eternal. He had no beginning. He has no end. He always is. Whatever the plan is for all of history, it involves him, and he's in control of it. Second, he is independent. He is self-existent. Life, all of life, exists in and of him. We look at creation and we marvel because he made it. It came from him. That's where the life is from. We're always looking to explain things. Well, how'd you get here? How'd you become like this? Well, God is that first unmoved mover, the ultimate answer. So when you look at creation and you marvel at your creator, and then you say, where did that come? Well, God made it. And then the clever child comes behind you and says, what? Well, then who made God? It's a fair question because everything in our world came from someplace and had to have a beginning and a start, whether it's the construction project you see all over, it seems like Chesterfield. It builds that house or roadway. Where does that come from? Well, somebody made it. Or the new puppy or it's the little brother in the room next door. Where do they come from? They all come from someplace, but not God. There never was a time when he was not. He just is. He always has been the I am. He's always present in that way. He had no beginning. He has no ending. He didn't start. He won't stop. He is. He's always been there and always will be world without end. Amen. This also means, though, that he is self-sufficient. As the I am who is the I am, he must be fully self-sufficient. He's not dependent on anything. He never needs anything. He needs nothing, which this also means he doesn't need you. He really doesn't. He doesn't need your praise. He's not missing it. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your prayers. He doesn't need your powers. He doesn't need your voice to get things accomplished. He's not dependent on you in the least. Actually, he perfectly exists apart from all of it, in and of himself. He needs no one. And so, Rick, why are you telling me this? But to underscore what? You need him more than you know. And in a short way, then, if we could summarize this idea, God does, that he is the I am, it's all captured by his personal name. His special name. And that's the name of God, Yahweh, or the Lord. Look at verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord. And you'll notice, at least in the ESV that I'm teaching from, and that I think you read here, you'll notice the Lord, like most English translations, it's in all caps. Because that stands for, in the Hebrew, what's behind it, God's name, Yahweh. That's God's personal name. Understand this. To talk about God, that's a class of being. Like you are human, but you have a personal name, Matt. God has a personal name. It's Yahweh or maybe Jehovah. This is the name that he is known by. And that's the name of, in a way, consolidated with the I am who I am. So back to verse 15, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. This is his name. This is the short way, shorthand way to say he is the I am. The Echyeh in the Hebrew, the Yahweh the self-existent one, the eternal one, the fully sufficient one. 
Because notice, as you even compare verses 14 and 15, notice how the one who sends them is interchangeable. In verse 14, we read this. At the end of the verse, tell them, I am has sent me to you. And then verse 15, he says, Yahweh, the Lord has sent me to you. Yahweh is thus the shorthand way to say he is the I am. And so then what unfolds throughout the book of Exodus is the I am introducing himself to the world. Explores This book explores what happens and all the way through Deuteronomy, let alone the advent. We'll talk about that in a moment. But all of it explores what happens when Yahweh, the I am, comes down to fellowship with his people. And if you think about the book of Exodus, what happens after this? You, you see that Yahweh is of unmatched power, unchallenged wisdom, unfailing loving kindness that is to be unfathomable. He's come down to show Israel, to show Egypt, to show all the world what he's like, that he's the saving I am. But of course, this is not the only time Yahweh has done this. And this is what we do studying the Advent. For it was the Word that came down and took on flesh and dwelt among us. And it says in John 1, we beheld his glory. And he taught us. In his ministry and by his word, he taught us this, even as we read. So this is now, I've flipped over to John chapter 8. You can just listen close. But here's what Jesus taught us. He's speaking and he says this, Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And at this, the Jewish leaders bristled, or maybe better said, raged at him. They retort and said, this is John 8, 52 now. The Jews said to him, Now we know, Jesus, you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, and yet you say, If anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be, Jesus? You're better than Abraham? You can beat death? Who do you think you are? Here's Jesus' response in a couple of verses later. He has the cheek to say this. This is John 8, 56. Oh, you mentioned Abraham. You know, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it. And he was glad. And right then, their brains went poof. What? John 8, 57. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Again, you're not even 50, and Abraham was walking on the earth, I don't know, some 2,000 years before that? How does that work? And he saw your day? You knew Abraham? That'd be like one of us going, oh yeah, I remember Abraham Lincoln, such a great guy. Oh, Washington, he was pretty all right. Charlemagne, yeah, he had some faults, but maybe some good things too. Alexander the Great, that guy could really get after it. I mean, you'd be that guy's a loon who'd be talking this way. Why? Because those guys have been dead and gone for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And this guy, he hardly looks not even 40. And how could you have known Abraham? Well, he couldn't have. Unless something was different about this Jesus. Notice his response to the question. You've seen Abraham and Abraham knows you? John eight fifty eight. Jesus said to them, Truly, I truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. And he doesn't just mean I existed before Abraham. I am the I am. I am the angel, the messenger that appears in the burning bush who is God himself. I am God and I've come down from heaven to show you what God is like because I am him. So before Abraham was, I am and always have been. Oh, the force and audacity of those words, right? They are sheer blasphemy if they're not true. And again, the Jewish leaders didn't miss what Jesus was saying because it says next that they picked up stones to throw at Jesus. But what fools they are, trying to throw stones at the I am. Thinking they can pelt stones and kill the one 
upon whom all breath and life depend. That's foolish unbelief. Jesus himself is God. He's Yahweh. He's the all-powerful self-existence I am. And you get it now. That's precisely why he can say, I can give you eternal life. Because he is life in and of himself. Is he greater than Abraham who died in the prophets? Oh, you bet he is. He's life in and of himself. He's the eternal I am. Death cannot contain him. It tried. It couldn't hold him or stop him. Sin, even the debt of hell that you had earned, he's the I am and can stop it all. So to that then, we may be fallen, we are. We may be rebels, we are. We have failed God many, many times. We are feeble, we are weak, we are unable to help, we are so flawed. We are so inadequate to be in relationship with him, let alone to be called to any task or ministry. But the I am came for us. And he's sufficient to save us because he has all sufficiency. But brothers and sisters, he's also sufficient to equip you for the work he's called you. He has not come, or excuse me, he has come. And he's come to forever be remembered as the fully sufficient Savior. So may our lives testify to that. We are not able, we are not perfect, but we are flawed and fallen. That's why we come to this table. But we have a greater Savior, the risen and victorious Jesus Christ, the I Am. Let's praise him. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you that you are a merciful God. We thank you that you love your name. You love your glory. And that you want to see it enjoyed and worshipped by all creation, namely those people you've bought from all time and history by the blood of Christ. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here that we can be reminded of how great you are. May we rejoice in your greatness to be a Savior that has mercy far beyond all of our sins. And may we also, too, be reminded that you're with us, that we may walk in faithfulness to the call, even though we don't feel adequate. But we count our adequacy not in ourselves, but in Christ and by your Spirit and your Word. Bless these dear saints of yours. For the glory of Christ's name who bought them, we pray. Amen.